turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 14 and 19. That's Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 14 and 19. That's where we are today. While you're doing that, I just want to ask a quick, simple question. Do you think the world needs more people doing good stuff? So nobody really has an opinion. <laughs> I get that, okay? So, so just, just nod if you say yes, shake your head if you say no. We could use more people doing good stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, as they said. Yeah. And I mean, we all think that that's true, right? I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that's not just true for those of us who go to church on Sunday morning. I'm going to say probably people outside are all thinking, you know, you know what would be great? If everybody in St. John's were just really good people, like they were nice people, that things were done nicely. In fact, it's pretty clear that this is, this is what we aim for because let's just look at our stories and our movies. I mean, just think about it. I have been reading, you know, CBC for a long time. It's one of my guilty pleasures. And every once in a while, you get these little stories that come up that say, you know, something, something really good has happened. Like, uh, there was the example of the person who went into a coffee shop just across town, unfortunately not when I was there, and just dropped a thousand bucks and said the next however many people are going to be paid for. And we think that's, that's pretty awesome, isn't it? You know, somebody just buying coffee for hundreds of strangers for no reason whatsoever. And, and, and you know, we have the story, I also just saw this story about a pizza shop down in Philadelphia, where, you know, pizza is about a dollar for each slice. I guess the American dollar is much stronger than the Canadian dollar. <laughs> but you can buy a slice of pizza, not just for yourself, but you can give a dollar and they'll take that as an extra pizza slice that's going to be available for people who come in. So they just tack on the wall, there's one more pizza slice that's available for free. And so if somebody who's hungry wants to come into the pizza place, they just take down one of these signs and say, I'd like that slice of pizza, please. And, you know, that's a pretty awesome thing to hear about. Look at our movies. Uh, one of the movies that I just recently saw was called Hacksaw Ridge. Has anybody ever seen, has seen that one? It's about this guy who was a pacifist, and he didn't believe in killing anybody ever, uh, he didn't carry a gun, but he fought on the front lines of World War II as a medic. And he saved scads of people by just going into enemy fire, picking up the dude, and bringing him back. And he, he'd pray every day, Lord, just let me save one more. And that was the way he worked. And we're thinking, this is awesome. This is, this is really amazing. You know, guys like this really exist. We, we talk about this when, when we see lots of people doing good things. Hey, if, if somebody, if you see somebody in a suit kneeling down and just talking to the person who happens to be homeless, we think that's a pretty good dude. And we all think that this is pretty good, don't we? Yeah. Now, why don't we see that a lot more? I mean, why isn't this normal? We all agree that this is a good thing. We all agree that it's positive to see people doing this. We all agree that you know doing good stuff is a good thing. 
Uh, most of us, when it comes to all the ills and problems that are in the world, we think, yeah, it'd be great if something was done about this. And, you know, uh, it'd be great if somebody did something about this. And we're all applauding the person who does something about this, but why don't we do this? And I, mean, I don't mean that individually, uh, per se, necessarily, but why do I ever have to pay for coffee at the coffee shop? Why isn't it always full of so many people who are just so generous they pay for everybody's coffee for days and days and days? There's just so many pe generous people in Newfoundland. Coffee is actually free at every coffee shop because somebody else paid for it all. Why is there? Why are there tons of pizza shops all over the all over the world where you know they're papered up and down the walls with free pizza for anybody who's hungry? Why aren't more of us the kinds of people who get movies made about them for doing awesome things? Why 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 doesn't this happen more often? Because we all agree that it's good. We all agree that it's a positive thing to be doing this. Yet, so few of us actually do this stuff. And it gets worse for us who are believers. We claim to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. We claim that God, seeing our lostness in sin, came down from heaven and died for our sakes. And we've been changed. We say that, right? Behold, the old has gone, the new has come. These, th these things have passed away. We're no longer the person we were before. We've been changed. We say that. But why is it so hard for us to do the good things? Now, this could be a very guilt-ridden kind of thing. I actually believe that Nehemiah, in chapter 5, verses 14 and 19, gives us a very clear clue as to how we, as believers, can be the kinds of people that are amazing, that God will use to do amazing things in this world, that, honestly, will confound those around us. Nehemiah actually shows us how we can be the kinds of people that, that others will see our good works and then glorify our Father in heaven. <coughs> That's a verse somewhere, I'm sure. You see, this morning's passage comes from an example of one perfectly normal dude. I know he's rich. I know he's, you know, in a specific time in history, and, you know, we think it's all exotic because we've seen that He's actually a perfectly normal dude. We, if you read the whole book of Nehemiah, he has the same angers, the same, the same foibles the rest of us do. He loses his temper just like everybody else. But just by being a perfectly normal guy, he is simultaneously a particularly generous person that we'll see today who gave his life doing good stuff. And 3,000 years later, as I've said before, we're reading about him. By looking at his example, I hope to show some particularly good advice as to how we can live lives that are truly good. Not just seem good, 
not just the kinds of lives that have a story thing placed over them, but we can <coughs> be truly good. We can see our lives reflect this. My argument is going to be simple. I'm going to argue that what powers all that is good in the Christian life, all good deeds, all heroic stands for truth, every act we'll be telling each other later to remind ourselves that there is good in the world, every single laudable act that either succeeds or seems to fail in this world, and yet will resound throughout the halls of heavenly mansions for all eternity to the glory of God, the power for all Christian good is the all-surpassing glory of God. And it's by God's power living literally for God's sake. I find it interesting. We, we live in a Christian culture, or at least a formerly Christian culture. And so sometimes the words that we use, the phrases that we swear by, actually give us a lot of truth. They're blasphemy because you know, they actually have truth and we don't mean the truth by them. Now, how often have you said, has somebody cut you off in traffic and you say, oh, for God's sake? Well... Yeah, for God's sake. What I'm going to say is Nehemiah is an example of someone who lives solely for God's sake. And that by living solely for God's sake, we too can have the same kind of power, the same kind of long-suffering, the same kind of accuracy in doing good that Nehemiah had. You see, it is hard to do good. It really is. First of all, most of us don't think of good things to do. We just go through our lives regularly. We just go through our lives dealing with the things that we have in front of us. I talked to you last time I was up here about the nobles of Israel who Nehemiah got really, really mad at because they were using a pretty standard economic situation for their time period against the other people of Israel. And they literally didn't see what was wrong until Nehemiah pointed it out to them. That's, that's one of the reasons why we don't do good. We just don't think of it. I mean, when I said, you know, somebody just had a pizza place where you could buy pizza in the future, some people are probably thinking, that's a really good idea. I wonder if I can do that. You hadn't thought about it before. But now you have. But that happens a lot. But worse, there are times when we try to do good things and it doesn't turn out good. I mean, I, I, I want to do something good, I try to do something good, and it actually turns out being pretty terrible. My mom tells me the story about when she was a child uh, here in Newfoundland, she would give money to the church to help educate Native children in Western Canada at residential schools which if you know, if you follow the news, had, wasn't a really good thing. She was actually giving money to something that later on would be, the church would be sued for actually helping out with. Because it was pretty evil. That happens. Sometimes things that we decide, that we think is the best things ever, don't actually work out. <laughs> Yet Nehemiah shows us how focusing on God can get us around even those questions. It can be long-suffering and boring doing the right thing. I mean, have you ever done something good and then, you know, realize nobody's noticing or nobody cares? And you just keep trying to do the good thing and nobody still notices or cares? Or sometimes people will just get mad at you for doing it. 
That happens all the time, doesn't it? It's hard to keep to do the right, right thing, and even when you do the right thing, it's hard to keep doing the right thing. Yet even here, Nehemiah shows us an example. So let's look at the text. I just want to show you, point to you a few things that you'll see in Nehemiah, and then hopefully give some applications for us based on what we see in Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah, remember this is Nehemiah writing his own memoir. We're reading Nehemiah's diary. From the time I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors, who were before me, laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of fear of God. I also persevered in the work on the wall. And we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on his people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for his people. So I want you to, want to notice a few things about Nehemiah. I want, first of all, to notice that he knew the right things to do. He didn't just come off, uh, off the top of his head and just, you know, well, I think I'll just not, do, not take, the, take, take these taxes from the people. And, you know, just on a whim, he decided, no, he knew the things to do. In fact, we knew, know that he looked deeply into the things to, that he needed to do because that's what we talked about in the first couple of chapters of Nehemiah. Let's go back to chapter, uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, this is where he's before coming to Jerusalem, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates are destroyed by fire. He understood the context of Jerusalem. He had actually heard about what was really going on on the ground. And he remembered it. He actually remembered it. He didn't just see something and have his heart twinged, though clearly his heart was twinged. He actually thought about it and considered this. He kept considering. We hear later in that same chapter that he spent days praying about this weeping about this, thinking about this, figuring out how he could help his people. Because not only did he care, he cared enough to learn from their needs. He was affected deeply by the needs of the people of Jerusalem. Uh, so I'm not going to say that being helpful doesn't mean you, <clears throat> means that you just kind of dispassionately focus on the things that, that need to happen. I am going to say that Nehemiah shows us that passion 
should be driven somewhere. It should be driven by something. You should actually care about the facts as they are, not just be driven by passion. That's very important for us. That'll be very important when I talk about what we need to be when we do good. He also did the time to actually learn more. Look at chapter 2, verses 11 to 16. So I went to Jerusalem. This is Nehemiah again saying, again, this is all his diary. So I went to Jerusalem and there, was there three days. Then I arose in the night and I had a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. So he's not actually going, to say, going out there and saying, okay, Jerusalem guys, here's what we're going to do. Just not from the, from the get-go. He's going to go learn there was no animal with me and no, uh, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night to the valley gauge, to the dragon spring, to the dungy, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate, to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, so, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were doing the work. See, Nehemiah did his research. He didn't just have a heart movement and then say, I'm going to throw money at this issue. He, went, he took the time to understand the situation that was on the ground in Jerusalem. He took the time to pray about what was going on. He considered this. And so by the time when we get to chapter 5 and he's ceasing to do the taxes, it's because he knows the people of Israel. He knows their situations. He knows what they're going through. Not because he, you know, imagines it, but because he did the research. He went to the ground and he tried to figure this stuff out. I mean, one of the things I didn't mention the last time, uh, the people of Israel came to Nehemiah to complain about the nobles. Why was the governor of Jerusalem able to be talked to by general normal people who were selling themselves into slavery? I mean, that's not normal, is it? Do you normally go up to the Confederation building and just go talk to the premier? Yo, hey, Dwight, how's it going? I mean, it doesn't happen that way, does it? Yet Nehemiah is the kind of guy who actually gets to know the people. He gets to know the situation. He gets to know the needs. He does research, like I said. And he doesn't speak until he's taken some time to learn. He doesn't do these things as if he's the, he's the complete expert, though, let's be frank, he's the cupbearer to the king, of, uh, the king of the empire. He probably knows a few things. He's probably a top-notch scholar dude because he's actually able to be in the presence of the king. He's a knowledgeable dude, and he is an expert, but he doesn't let that expertise just go to his head. He learns. <coughs> not only does he understand the situation, and this is another point that puts us a little different from people who aren't, who don't know God. In chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he prays. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them into the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Nehemiah knew the promises of God. 
And he knew the promises of God, but not only that, he knew God. He knew the promises of God so he could say them to God in prayer. But he knew God personally so he could pray to God. He wasn't just a person who was an expert, who had understandings of things, who pretended that you know, the physical was all that was needed. He knew that there was a spiritual aspect to this. He knew what was going on here, that if anything was going to work out, God had to be behind it. And he knew God. So, Nehemiah knew the good things to be done. He knew what the right things were to be done because he had done the work both to understand God's will and to understand the situation that he was facing on the ground. Second of all, he knew the right things to do, and then he did them. It wasn't just an academic exercise for him to learn about what the good things were that, that uh, God called him to and that his heart was moving into. Look at verse 514. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Xerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Now, food allowance of the governor means he has the right to do this. And he doesn't take it. Because he knew the problems that the people were facing. He knew that the, some of them couldn't, couldn't eat. He knew that because of the famine, some of them were selling themselves into slavery to the nobles. That's why he was angry last time. He decided not to place a burden on people. <coughs> Nehemiah knew that the people had been suffering under the burdens of previous governors, as it says. And in the face of that, he refused to add to that burden because he knew the situation. And because... He cared enough to do it. He cared enough to actually do things that he knew were, were necessary. He continued to work in service to the, uh, on the wall. It says in verse uh, 16, he discharged his own duties. I also persevered in the work on the wall and acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered for the work. Nehemiah did all the things that he was required to do, and then did more by being generous and not taking the taxes that he was due. And he wasn't just normally generous, he was lavishly generous. Good verses 17 and 18. Moreover, there were, more, were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. And what was prepared from, at my expense for each day was one ox, six sheep, and birds. And every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. He was feeding people, discharging his role as governor, even better than just the minimum, and at the same time, not taking any of the resources that he was due according to the law to do it. This bears some considering as well. He was doing the right things even as the culture told him it wasn't necessary. Remember, this was his right. He is the governor. Governors get taxes. They have a right to that. I mean, we may complain about, you know, the fact that they take too much taxes, but nobody seriously thinks that a government can operate without actually taking taxes ever. So we don't complain completely about it. It was his right to take the money to do this kind of stuff. To be clear, taking the Jews and the officials and feeding them, that's actually a role of a governor. 
These are his civil servants. He should pay them. Uh, as anybody who works in the civil service will probably agree with me. You should, be, you should get paid for doing the work of the civil service. But even though he had the cultural right to, ex to expect it, he still knew that it would be more than the people could handle, so he didn't do it. In the face of, of what was going on around him, he actually responded. More than that, he didn't just do it for a day or two. For 12 years, he continued this way. He didn't take the taxes year one, year two, year all the way to year 12. There's no evidence whatsoever in this, in this text that he decided on day 37 of, of year six that you know it was just a little too tight for him this time, and so he was just going to decide right now, okay, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to take some taxes just to make sure that I can top up the things. I, the, the people will understand. I've been good to them for six years, seven years, eight years. You, I don't need to be in. He's for 12 years. From what we can see, it was almost his entire first term as governor. He just didn't take taxes. Now, of course, obviously he's wealthy. But notice he's choosing to put his wealth to, a, to the needs that he sees, the needs that he knew, the needs that he took time to find out. Most important. So why is he able to do this? Why is Nehemiah able to work this way? He said he tells us twice. He did it all for God's sake. Look first. Look first in verse fifteen. It says Nehemiah did not want to place a burden on the people for the shekels of silver he deserved according to the job because of quote the fear of the Lord. Now. When it comes to the fear of the Lord, there's a lot of ink spilled on dealing with this. Um, lots of people will talk to you about what, whether the fear of the Lord is, you know, just uh, a, a really strong focus on the glory or its actual terror. Uh, the word fear, yirah, from the Hebrew, actually just means fear. In fact, in case you're wondering about uh, what it means by fear, in Jonah 1.10, it's the same word that the sailors have when they find out Jonah might actually be under the curse of God, they're probably all going to die for that sake. Fear, terror. He has a fear of the Lord. Now that doesn't mean that he you know, absolutely lives in terror. It means, though, that he expects God to be just. And he knows that God's going to be just. And he knows that because God is going to be just, he should be on the side of justice and the side, instead of the side of injustice. He cares about what God thinks. He trusts that God is far above everything that he could ever ask or imagine, so he fears God. That's, that's something we need to remember. He cares about who God is. He cares to fear God. Notice he doesn't say, I, I did this for the because my heart was twinged. He doesn't say it because I had good sympathy for the people, though he did. He says, I did it because I have fear of the Lord. That's going to be very important for us. Because I don't know if you're anything like me, and I, I hope you're actually much nicer people than I am. I know myself to be in the heart, my heart. I, I know you probably aren't, but I, I live in hope. I can be, feel really bad for people for a little while. Like, 
I can watch the same documentaries you do about starving children in Africa. Uh, I'm going to feel really bad about that. And I'm going to think, oh man, something's got to be done, something's got to be done. And I'll turn the channel and forget completely about it in 15 minutes. That's kind of most of us, I think. You know, we'll see the good thing that needs to be done. And our, our, our hearts are not going to be adequate to impel us to good deeds for a long period of time. Because our hearts are fickle. We're sinful. It's important that we focus, that Nehemiah focused on God. On the constancy of God, on the truth of God, on the justice of God, on the fearfulness of God, on the power of God. And by focusing on those things, knew that this right thing that was to be done could be done for a long time. But it gets even more interesting. We're, look at verse 19. He states, and this is him praying to God in his, in his diary, Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Don't pass over that. That doesn't just mean that, you know, I'm doing this so that God will bless me. No, he does mean that. He's saying that I believe God will, will repay me for any good I do. I believe that God can see what's going on here. I believe that God knows the good I do. I believe that God remains constant and he is faithful. I believe that despite what's going on around me, despite the things that I don't see or I see, that whatever happens... The good I do is seen by God, and God will respond. Maybe not immediately, maybe not until eternity. But I believe God will. And that's what Nehemiah is saying by this. Friends, and, and, and don't, we, we've got this weird idea because we're, you know, Westerners living post Immanuel Kant, by the way, terrible moral theologian, great philosopher, terrible moral theologian. And we, we imagine that something is not good if it has any benefit coming to us. Uh, we actually don't believe that as Christians. Hebrews 11.6 tells us, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Um, in some sense, we are to be a little bit mercenary with God. Not mercenary, I guess that's a bad word. We are to recognize that God rewards things. Because God is just. God knows justice. God knows the truth. God acts on the truth. God <coughs> does actually reward good that is done. Now that's, that's important to remember for us too. If God rewards all that's, all that's good that's done, that means... Anything that we do right now for the good of God, in the desire to see God glorified, will be repaid. It will be. Whether we see it now, it will be, because we know God is faithful. See, Nehemiah knew this. He wasn't being an idiot. He wasn't being, you know, some superhero. He, was, he actually understood that the good that we, he was doing was a positive investment in, what, in, in his future, in the future of the world. Because he knew that the glory of God was far more valuable than the things he could do for himself. So he sought after the glory of God. I mean, doesn't that make sense? 
you have the opportunity to have a nice house in this lifetime, uh, or you have the opportunity to be with God for eternity. Which do you choose? The house is really nice, but God is infinitely glorious. Infinite joys are in his right hand. Uh, I don't care how nice the house is. It doesn't beat that. I don't care how our money is valuable. It's not anywhere near the guy who created the universe. It's far more valuable to, to know God than it is to <coughs> know anything here. And Nehemiah knew this. I, he's, think, he, he's doing the best calculus you can imagine. He's thinking, okay, I can, I can do these things that will make me comfortable now. And I'll, you know, be comfortable now. And people will like me now. Or I can do the things that I know God calls me to do. And I can have infinite joy increasing for all eternity. See, Nehemiah's not an idiot. <coughs> he understands things. And it's important that we do too. Because... Nehemiah was a Jew. He knew the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we as believers, friends, we also stand with the same God. Nehemiah's God is our God. Galatians <coughs> chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, don't, if you're into gender-neutral gender language, as children, it means you're actually a child of God. I use the word sons because all of us, men and women, are co-heirs of Christ. We have, the same, we have the same rights as Christ because we have been adopted by God through Christ. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father! So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We stand as people of God. Don't forget that. By Christ's work, we are of the people of God. So Nehemiah's God and our God, same God. And it's important to remember, God remains the same. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He doesn't change. So all of the things I told you about Nehemiah, all of the things that powered Nehemiah's good deeds, that drove him to act in the ways he did, are available to us. All of them. Because it's the same God. And that God doesn't change. If he was faithful then, he's faithful now. He will be faithful later. We are now in the family of God. Our sin has been taken away. And instead we stand in the righteousness of Christ. We don't need to worry about whether God hates us or not. He loves us. Because we stand in Christ. So friends, now we have the opportunity. 
to be able to live for the glory of God. Not living anymore for just the selfish things that are available here in this world and are going to be gone in days. I'm moving right now. And one of the things I'm finding out is I've got a lot of useless junk. <coughs> a lot of useless junk that at the time that I spent my hard-earned money to buy it, I thought was the most amazing thing ever. Does anybody know what a Palm Pilot is anymore? <laughs> I have a working one. Like, seriously. Th th this, this is our world. Things pass away. We, we don't have to work for this stuff. We can work for the glory of God. And we know that anything we do for the glory of God will be delivered because God is faithful. He has always been faithful. Read your Bibles. For history, throughout all of history, God has remained faithful. So we can know that he's going to be faithful. So that means we can take Nehemiah as an example for us for this. So here are four things that I think we need to remember as Christians. Now, I have to say, people make fun of me because usually my application is trust Christ. I'm going to say that again. Trust Christ. But I'm going to give you four ways of doing that here. First of all, love God. None of the rest of this is going to make any sense whatsoever unless we love God. Nehemiah's work was driven not because he just simply had a boss who was God, but because he cared about that boss. He knew that boss was faithful. He trusted that boss, and he worked for that, that person because he loved him. So much more us who are adopted as sons. We need to love God. The next three steps will make no sense at all unless this makes sense to you. And I know not all of us are believers today. I know that that's probably any given group of people. There's some people who don't know Jesus. If you are not a believer today, take the opportunity today, learn about Jesus, put your faith in him. I don't mean just pray a prayer or anything like that. I mean, learn about it, put your faith in it, trust him, learn to trust him. If you need somebody to talk to, come talk to me. I'll even buy the nachos. There's a good book out on the back shelf. If you're, if you're an unbeliever, you can read it. It's called, What is the Gospel? Read it. Try to understand it. We'll pray about it. We'll, I'll deal with your questions. But seriously, learn to love God. Open your Bible, and I'll show you some really nice stuff if you want to. But seriously, love God. And those of us who already know God, do your darndest to learn more about him, because in learning more about him, you can't help but love him more. So spend some time getting to know him. Second, learn the right things to do. As believers, we don't get, we don't get to just hand, pass out money to things. Money is useful and it's good. But we don't get to just simply assuage our own guilt by just handing money off to anything that, that twinges our heart. We need to be the kinds of people who do things that actually are good. So we need to do the research. We need to be the kinds of people who get to know the situations that we want to work into. 
who get to know the people we want to help. If you, want, if, you, if you think there's homelessness is an issue here in St. John's, I don't think it is. I think that poverty is, though. Get to know poor people. Go talk to them, hang out with them, learn, listen. Don't just learn from them and listen from them. Also learn God. Understand what God's call is for our lives and what God's call is for other people. Do you know that the city needs to hear about Jesus Christ? It does. It really, really does. Well, learn the city. Learn the people in the city. Do you have neighbors who need to hear about Jesus Christ? Learn them. Get to know them. Talk to them. Not as a project, but as people. Get to love them. Get to know them so that you can know their needs, and then you can apply their needs to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then they can be saved too. We need to be the kinds of people that learn the right things to do. Don't be the kinds of Christians who just kind of bomb people with <coughs> nice phrases and then just leave them, leave them hanging. Get to know them. Get to love them. Bring the gospel. Learn the right things to do. Meditate hard on your word to do that. Psalm 119.99 says, I have, Because I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies, referring to God, are my meditations. So meditate on his testimonies. So that we can be wise. Not just wise in the sense of an, an abstract concept. We can be really wise. People will sit on a hill and people will learn from us. No, because we are wise so that we know what it is we are to do. So learn the right things to do. And then... Do them. I, I don't know how to make that any simpler, but we need to do them. It's okay for us to have all this knowledge about, you know, the person next to me really needs to know Jesus Christ. He's really hurting right now and is suffering through uh, terrible things going on in his life. I know that. Yeah? And, and, and I know that Jesus would help him, and I know that it would be good for me to hang out with him and, and well, Hang out with him. <coughs> Buy him coffee. In fact, if, if you know somebody like that right now, I recommend you text him. Now, this is one of the few times I'm going to say, you know, use your phone and text somebody. Even now, I'm okay. Please, do the things that God puts on your heart to do. Does God tell you that you need to be praying more? Well, pray. <coughs> but do this. And keep doing this all for the glory of God. Because that's number four, by the way. Four. Thank you. Keep doing these things for the glory of God. Because I've just been very excitable. And people are going to say, well, Steve was very excitable today. And so... I'm going to be. Uh, I'm going to follow through with some of the things he said because you know I'd like to be excitable like Steve. Yeah, not a good reason. The only reason, the only way we are going to be able to act the way God calls us to act for any length of time, for the kind of length of time that needs to happen to see the kinds of changes around us that God desires to make around us, is if we do everything for the glory of God. And we put God's glory front and center all the time. You are not going to keep this going on your own will. You're just not. 
Because that guy next to you who's hurting and has problems, he can be a jerk. And you're going to get mad at him sometimes. And the gospel calls you to love him anyway, and you're not going to do that in your own power. The city that needs Jesus Christ so badly is going to trample parts of the gospel on and off for the rest of our lives. It's just going to happen because we live in a sinful world. And it's going to be easy for us to retreat into our little, into our little church and pretend that the outside world doesn't matter. We need to still keep telling people about Jesus. And the only way we're going to be, have the power to do that is if we have the glory of Christ first and foremost and hold it there. Because we, because we need to see the glory of God. We need to know that God is the ultimate strength by which we do this stuff. That he remains worth it. That if every person I know rejects me today, if I never have another friend, and please God, I really love you guys and I don't want to lose friends, but if I have to lose every friend for the sake of the glory of God, okay. Because he's worth it. If I have to live in poverty, <coughs> he's worth it. If I never get married, he's worth it. Amen. He will always be worth it. So we need to have the glory of God front and center. Because in the end, he's worth more than anything we could ever ask or imagine. He's more beautiful than anything we could, we could talk about. I'm not very poetic, so I can't really give you a poem here, but it would really fit. <laughs> God is amazing. He's far more amazing than anything we can have here. He's far more amazing than anything we could pay for here. And so we need to do the right things for his glory forever. Let's pray. Lord God, sometimes you make me say things that terrify me. I pray right now that I'm weak, I'm stupid, and I'm poor. I plead with you, Lord, please make that stuff true. Work in my heart right now so that I can see your glory above everything else, and everything else will not matter compared to the all-surpassing glory that you are. God, let my brothers and sisters know you for who you are. Let them have the infinite joy that you are. Friends, many people I know and care about who don't know you or who claimed that they once did know you and don't know you now. I pray, Lord, that you'd open their eyes to see you. Not so that I could have notches in my belt, but so that you could get glory and they could get joy. I desire to see people know you, Lord. <coughs> Lord God, where there's fear and oppression and danger and injustice in this world, let us be the people who bring your glory in the midst of that. Oh God, let us live for you. And when it comes the time for us to pass this life, 
Let us be doing it with expectation to stand in the mansions of glory, preaching your glory for the rest of eternity, knowing that everything we've done here is for your sake. But we can only do that in your power and by your spirit because we are wretched and blind without you. Oh God, open our eyes. Oh God, change our hearts. And Lord God, I thank you because as you've said, any good gift comes from you. And that when we ask for your spirit, you will give it. Give it in double measure today, Lord. Change our hearts. In Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Amen.